Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Michael Levin. He's a distinguished professor, and of our Bush professor, uh, director of the Allen Discovery Center at Tufts University. He's part of the Tufts Center for Regenerative and Developmental Biology. He's working on some really interesting things in biology, interesting uh, findings. So, Mike, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Good. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Well, if you would, in your own words, tell me about your research, please. Sure. Um, our lab works at the intersection of three uh, large fields, and that is uh, developmental biology, computer science, and cognitive science. So all together, we try to understand how cells and tissues make decisions and how they process information towards things like creating appropriate complex anatomies and repairing and modifying those anatomies under injury and various kinds of stress, and in general, trying to understand where biological information processing comes from and how we can use that knowledge to make better engineered devices. Even the first few things you said, you know, how cells make decisions, a lot of scientists I speak to seem to think that cells are, uh, you know, complex machines and they don't make any decisions and they just, uh, they follow the, what evolution has laid down for them. But what, I would think no one would doubt that cells are alive, but what, uh, what do you think is the extent of their abilities, their agency, like, when you think of cells, how do you think of them? Yeah, well, this is, uh, the, the, you know, of course, you, you're, you're talking about a, a Pandora's box of uh, interesting questions. So even, even the first thing you said about cells being machines. So certainly there are some people that um, don't think cells are machines at all. And uh, other people are well aware of machines that we have that do make decisions. We have, we have plenty of uh, autonomous um, robotics that, that have to make decisions in various circumstances. So I think the idea is uh, there's a couple basic things that I would say. The first thing is that it's a serious mistake to try to divide the world into things that truly make decisions and have memories and have agency and those that don't. I think that kind of binary uh, perspective is what gets us in trouble because inevitably you run into corner cases and you find out that your definition actually isn't very good. And so I think that for all of these kinds of things, what we have to face is, is that it, we're not magic. Um, you know, human decision-making didn't just sort of um, spring up from nowhere. It evolved uh, slowly and gradually from much more simple and uh, sort of modest versions of the same thing, going all the way back to the first bacteria and, and, and before that. And so the question for all of these things, whatever system you're looking at, whether it be a cell, whether it be a thermostat, or whether it be a robot or a tissue or an organ or some creature from another planet that eventually we might discover. The question is not, does it have agency or doesn't it? The question is how much agency does it have? And the answer may be very little, or the answer may be a lot, or it may be human level, or it may be beyond human level. But I think the real question is simply to understand what level of agency makes the most sense to ascribe to whatever you're looking at. And so I tend to tend to go along with uh, Dan Dennett's um, intentional stance in the 
in the sense that I think this is not a question of philosophy. I think this is a very practical empirical engineering question. So you have a system, you're trying to reverse engineer it, and your goal is to understand what it's doing and learn to control it, right? And this is true for, let's say, regenerative medicine, uh, or, you know, any, any, any kind of application of technology. And so you have a wide range of conceptual tools available. You can treat it as a piece of chemistry. You can treat it uh, as, a, as a machine following uh, some basic laws of physics. You can, you can treat it uh, on, on various levels of um, the, the hierarchy of neuroscience. So you can, you can ask if it has memory, you can ask if it can uh, anticipate the future and, and, and maybe it has the ability to formally uh, represent things that it has learned and to generalize from experience. All of these are possible. And so your goal as a scientist and an engineer is to pick the best one. It's not to have philosophical arguments about which thing is, is you know, true uh, and, and correct. I'm not even sure there is such a thing. But what you have to do is figure out which, which formalism is going to give you the best understanding and control of your system. And I think, uh, I, I will argue that for cells and tissues and those kinds of things, using formalisms from cognitive science that uh, acknowledge the fact that these things do store memories, they do have adaptive problem solving under novel circumstances, so something we would call primitive intelligence. All of these things are very useful concepts in, do, in doing experiments. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. Okay, so what's your model? What's your system look like? What's your experimentation look like so far? Yeah, we have a, a whole variety of uh, systems in the lab. We have kind of a zoo. So um, we have frog embryos. Um, we have uh, flatworms, so, so regenerating flatworms. Uh, the, the frog embryos we mostly use for uh, for cancer studies and for birth defect uh, kinds of work and, and developmental biology. And then we have planaria or flatworms, which in which we study regeneration. And we, in fact, we also study behavior and uh, the regeneration of, of, of memories in the brain after damage. We have slime molds where we study basal cognition and the ability of organisms that don't have a brain to make decisions and to learn and, and so on. We have ant colonies as a way to try to understand how individual organisms can scale up into collectives where the collective has its own uh, certain type of collective intelligence and so on. Um, we have human cells in culture and various types of organoids. We make synthetic living machines, which are creatures that uh, never existed on Earth before, but they're made of cells of uh, various uh, various sources. So um, yeah, and in the past we've had zebrafish, we've had axolotl, uh, bacteria, we've got all kinds of things. Oh my God, you got a lot of systems. Yeah, let's let's talk about the uh, flatworms because I know you put out a lot of papers about that. What do you do with the flat flatworms? I you know. Looks like you're chopping off their heads and tails and growing new things in their place. Tell me about that. Yeah, um, flatworms are kind of an amazing uh, model system. In in, in a certain sense, uh, the the planarian flatworm contains most of the mysteries of uh, of, of of modern uh, biology. In it, I mean, flatworms first of all are highly regenerative. They every piece of a worm will give rise to a correct uh, tiny little worm. So every chunk knows exactly what's missing if it gets injured and what it needs to restore. They, uh, the record I think is somewhere around 270 pieces or something like that from a single worm. They are also uh, basically immortal, so they don't age. There's no such thing as an old planarian. They, they go on, as far as we can tell, forever, um, regenerating senescent cells. They have a massive amount of plastic stem cells inside, and yet uh, they're extremely resistant to cancer. They are extremely resistant to the kind of 
somatic inheritance that they practice, meaning they, they, in order to reproduce, they tear themselves in half and each half regenerates a new worm. Well, when you do that, unlike us, when, uh, when we get a mutation in our bodies, our children don't inherit it, right? And so the genome kind of stays clean because of the sexual reproduction. Well, these species that we work with largely just fissions, which means that any mutation that hits a stem cell that doesn't kill it will then be propagated into the next generation of worm and will give rise to a bunch of cells that uh, carry that mutation. So, so these worms are genetically a complete mess. Um, they can be mixiploid, where every cell has a different number of chromosomes. So genetically, they're, they're a total mess. And yet, uh, every time you cut them, they have 100% anatomical fidelity in terms of what they build. So the anatomy is rock solid while the genome can change. So planaria, they don't reproduce sexually. They just, they go through binary fission and like, how does a new planaria come about? Um, they can, so, so most species can reproduce sexually under specific circumstances, um, especially the ones that we work with generally don't do that. What they generally do is fission. So, so every worm, when it's happy, or in fact, if it's unhappy, they do the same thing. They basically rip themselves in half, and each half regenerates. So what, what kind of experimentation are you doing to determine, you know, the, uh, the ability of cells to, again, solve problems and you know, determine morphology and all that? Yeah, well, uh, we've done a couple of, uh, I think, interesting things with them. One, one aspect is we've asked the question, uh, you know, during regeneration, one of the most amazing things about uh, that process is that it knows when to stop. So regeneration, these, these cells reproduce very rapidly. They move around, they, they, they make copies of themselves. And all of this stops when a correct worm is complete. So we ask this simple question, how do cells know when, or how does the tissue know or the organism when they've created the correct uh, final pattern? And so we made a hypothesis that they actually encode some, uh, to some level of detail, obviously not to the single cell level, but to some level of detail, they encode a large scale map or representation of what a correct uh, planarian looks like. And we, we call this the target morphology. And this is not just for planaria, this is for, for, for all organisms. And so um, we picked a very simple aspect of that target morphology, which is how many heads are you supposed to have? Okay, one, two, or, or however many. And so what we, what we discovered was uh, a particular, there's a, there's a bioelectric circuit which is, uh, is an electrical network made of not specifically neurons, but all, all kinds of cells in the planarian. And that electrical circuit holds a particular spatial distribution of an electric state. You can, you can literally see it. We've developed fluorescent dyes let you see these voltage gradients. And you can see this pattern that the tissue is holding. And the pattern, as it turns out, the pattern tells you how many heads you're supposed to have. So we've developed a way to see that pattern. And then we developed a way to rewrite it. So the reason that I now think that these organisms have a, a stored memory of what they're supposed to look like, a, a represented target morphology, is that we can see it and we can change it. And what we do is we go in with uh, specific drugs or RNAi targeting different ion channels. And we specifically do this in a way that will alter that electrical map to, instead of one head, to say two heads or zero heads, for example. And what's cool about it is that we don't do any genomic editing. We don't touch the genetics of the organism. We simply rewrite the electrical pattern that, de that determines what the cells are going to build if they're injured. So there's sort of, it's a very interesting, you know, this is very familiar to computer scientists as a kind of separation of data from the machine. So you have this machine, you have these cells, they're willing to build any number of things. And the question is, what shall they build? And they store this kind of memory of what they're supposed to, this collective memory of what they're supposed to build. So 
So we rewrite this, this pattern and, uh, and then the cells build. And so you can get zero headed worms, you can get two headed worms. And one of the coolest thing about the two headed worms is that if you then cut them into pieces in plain water, no more manipulations of any kind, they will continue to give rise to two headed worms. So what you can do is you can permanently change the pattern to which these cells will regenerate. So the target morphology, you can permanently change that without editing the genome. And we can take them into a two cell state, a two head state that's permanent or take two headed worms and convert them back to a one headed form. So how are you changing the shapes that they'll make? You talked about ion channels, like, you know, can you go a little bit deeper into that? Like, what are you doing? What do you mean? Yeah, so it was so so a large chunk of our lab works on uh, bioelectric signaling. So this is the idea that uh, all cells, not just uh, brains, uh, encode electrical patterns, and that these electrical patterns are instructive for morphogenesis. They're instructive for embryonic development. They are instructive for cancer suppression or regeneration. All of these scenarios where cells have to work together towards some specific goal. That goal, which is in effect the memory of the of the collective agent made of these cells, that that is represented electrically. And so, in order to change that, you have to go in and you have to uh, target the proteins that induce the ability of cells to to send and receive electrical signals. And those are ion channels, basically the same thing that neurons use. Only uh, only the whole thing is operating at a much slower scale uh, outside the brain. So what we do is we we have a variety of techniques. We use drugs, uh, sometimes we use optogenetics or light, and the idea is to turn these channels on and off to induce the precise electrical state that you want. And then the trick, of course, is figuring out what state do you want, and then which channels can you open and close to get you that state. It's, it's not obvious. You need to do a lot of computational modeling for that. Wait, so how do two cells in the planaria communicate electrically? You said it's slow. Do they passage uh you know, a series of ions to each other through a through a channel that's formed, and that creates like a, an extremely slow electrical signal. Like, like how does that work? Close, um, close. So, so every cell in your body has these ion channels sitting in their surface, and these ion channels pass things like potassium chloride, sodium, and protons in and out of the cell. And uh, by doing that, by by passing particular types of ions in particular directions you establish what's known as a resting potential. You establish a voltage gradient between the inside and the outside of the cell. So every cell has this. And then the other thing that cells have is they have, they have something called a gap junction, which is basically an electrical synapse. It's a tiny little portal that links the inside of one cell with the inside of their neighbors. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And so if you have, if you're a cell that has a particular voltage, let's say minus 20 millivolts, and I am your neighbor and I have a different voltage, let's say minus 70 millivolts, we can open this gap junction between us and uh, our voltage, my voltage will affect yours and vice versa. Now it's not just for voltage, these gap junctions pass other things, calcium, small metabolites, uh, other small molecules. But basically these electrical synapses allow cells to, to connect, connect to each other electrically. And what's, what's super cool about them is that they are themselves voltage gated. So in other words, whether or not my side of the portal is open depends on my voltage and whether or not your side of the portal, portal is open depends on your voltage and vice versa. And so what that means is that these gap junctions are voltage gated current conductances. And if that sounds familiar, that's because it is, if that's a transistor. A voltage gated current conductance is basically a transistor element where 
what happened previously, whatever events happened previously that set the voltage, determine whether the gap junction is open, which means they determine what happens next. And anytime you have a scenario where past events alter what's going to happen next, you have a pro the property of memory. So these gap junctions have a type of historicity to them, meaning that they're not just sort of uh, simple, simple holes that remain open all the time. They open and close based on things that have happened in the past. And so that allows cells to form very sophisticated electrical circuits, which you know, you know, you, you can imagine once you can make transistors, you can make logic gates, you can make almost anything. So that that's that's kind of the uh, the beginnings of computation at the tissue level. Wow. So it's it's like a chemical battery then, really. I mean, you have all these. It's a it sounds like it's a circuit, but what moves between the uh, elements or the gates of the circuit are ions, right? Um, it, 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 so, so every cell has a battery, that's the cell surface. So the cell membrane is, is a battery in the sense that it drives a voltage differential across it. Um, what moves between cells is not necessarily, uh, not necessarily ions, it's, uh, it's, it's electrical state. So it's kind of like, uh, kind of like, well, it's very much like electricity in the brain and the nervous system. And it's, a, and it's somewhat like uh, electricity in, in, in circuits. So what, what you can propagate is um, it's kind of a relay. So it's not as if you, know, if you have a lot of cells in the tissue, it's not necessarily that one ion goes all the way from one side to another to sing, signal to that cell, but a depolarization in one side will affect the next cell over, which affects the next cell over, which affects the next cell over and so on. And these electrical states propagate depending on which gap junctions are open and closed, they propagate in really interesting uh, paths throughout the tissue. This is crazy. I mean, was this, this must have been the literature. Like, how did, how did you pick up on this? I mean, how, uh, at what point did you, how did you encounter this? How did you even contemplate that this was going on? Well, uh, I, I've been interested since uh, very, uh, my, my sort of very, very early days. I was interested in, in, uh, in computation and intelligence. And I was interested in uh, living things, and I was interested in computers and, and robots, and I was interested in asking this question of what kind of system do you need to be able to process information and have cognition, right? And, and you know, what is it that's special about living things that enables them to process information, make decisions, store memories, have preferences, and have, you know, have agency? Uh, what, what is it about their architecture that allows them to do that? And uh, and and what can we what can we take from that in building new artificial minds, basically, right? Artificial intelligences. So in in studying all of this, uh, so, several things became clear to me. First of all, um, the uh, of course of course our brain is one of the best examples. Well, it's the best example of a physical system that has agency and 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 all of those nice things. And if you look under the hood, it's got these sophisticated, uh, this sophisticated electrical network, but you have to ask where that came from. So we didn't suddenly just you know, get brains uh, from the ether, the, the brains evolved. And if you think about where neurons evolved from, it's clear that they basically just speed optimized a lot of functions that were already there in ancient, uh, in ancient life. In fact, bacteria already have a lot of these functions. Bacteria, people have studied bacteria as models of neurons and so on. So, so it's clear that evolution uh, found this trick of, of processing information via electricity long ago. So, so that's, so that's one, one way of thinking about it. The other way of thinking about it is that if you think about embryonic development, even the most basic functions, let's say, um, think about where monozygotic twins come from. So you have this mammalian embryo, you cut it in half, and 
each half knows exactly what's missing and, and grows the other half that's missing. And so now you have two full uh, monozygotic twins. You don't have two half embryos. So even in, even in the earliest developmental biology, you see right away that cells and tissues have an incredible amount of plasticity and they have the ability to do a kind of error reduction scheme. In other words, they, they, they have a representation of what shape they're trying to build and to some tolerance, obviously you can, you can uh, you know, overdo things, but, but to some tolerance, they're able to get to that, um, to get to that uh, outcome, even under very drastic perturbations, like half the machine being missing. We, you know, we don't have any, any, any robots or, or, or you know, artifacts that can do that. So uh, what this is telling you is that all, all cells, you know, put those two things together and it tells you that all, all cells have the ability to join into uh, collectives that have goals and can pursue those goals under various degrees of stress and perturbation. And we need to figure out how this works. And I thought, you know, given, given how convenient electricity is for processing information and the computer scientists obviously know this and, and so does neuroscience, I thought then it must be very, very natural to have this hypothesis that uh, the, the earliest usage of these bioelectric networks before we had brains and behavior and so on, was to use them as the informational glue that holds together cellular collectives as they try to figure out what they should be making and, and to uh, coordinate their activity towards a central goal. I mean, you know, biologists don't love to um, generally talk about goals, but the reality is, um, I think it's uncontroversial that human beings have goals and many people who study behavior uh, understand that, that, that many animals have goals. And we have to keep in mind that all creatures, including ourselves, are collective agents. You know, we're made of parts. We're not, we're not some, you know, monadic, uh, you know, piece of diamond that, uh, that is just kind of a single thing. We're a bag of neurons. And in order for us to have goals, it means that there must be some mechanism for a bunch of cells, you know, that, that are that each one of them not very sophisticated compared to the collective. There must be some way to... Um, get to, for them to get together and uh, be able to work towards some goal that's bigger than any of them alone. There's got to be this incredible scaling mechanism that enables uh, enables um, uh, individuals to work together towards group goals and the collective um, the collective uh, agency of of this uh, of this swarm intelligence. So that's you know that's kind of the the thinking that uh, that, that led me to all this. Yeah, so many things to talk about. Um... Getting back to the planetary cells though. So, okay. So you're controlling the opening and closing of the various ion channels. So you're uh, changing the, I guess, the structure of the circuit that's formed by the, you know, adjacent cells. So this is really important. We are not changing the uh, structure of the circuit in the sense of rewiring, primarily changing the state of the circuit. The difference is and, and you can see this this uh, is is really well illustrated by the journey that computer science took. I, I have I have a nice uh, slide of this that I show when I give talks. In the 40s and 50s, when you wanted to program a computer, you had to physically rewire it. So you had to you had to literally I, you know I have this picture of this of this woman um, and she's programming the computer, which means she's pulling wires in and out. So you had to physically interact with the hardware. But then what computer science realized is that uh, if your hardware is good enough. And I'm going to argue that biology, biological hardware is definitely good enough. Um, that what you can do is you can you can program it by inputs. 
not by physical rewiring. You don't need to change the, the, the system. You know, when you switch from Photoshop to Microsoft Word on your laptop, you don't have to get out your soldering iron and start, it start rewiring the structure of it because it has this amazing property of reprogrammability. You can, you can change what it does by taking advantage of the software with transient inputs, you know, things like key presses on your keyboard and so on. So biology, I think, is, is similar. And I think that the next generation of biology has to get beyond where we are now, which is basically um, focused on the hardware level. You know, all of the most exciting advances nowadays in biology are all molecular approaches and, and genome editing. You know, everything's about the molecules, which, which is fine. Those very important technologies, but they're all focused at the hardware level. And we have to get beyond that. We have to get to the software level because everybody knows it's brutally difficult to program at, at the hardware level. You have to micromanage everything. And we can do way better than this by taking advantage of the uh, software. And part of that software is, is electrical. Part of it, of course, is chemical. Part of it is biomechanical. But the idea is uh, in the one area, we do not rewire the circuit in the sense that we don't add ion channels, we don't subtract ion channels, nothing like that. Uh, we transiently give the system an input meaning we alter the electrical signal in one part of the animal, and then we let the circuit do its thing. And our, our entire uh, goal of that part of the lab is to crack this bioelectric code, meaning to understand the software so that we can figure out exactly what stimuli we have to give it to, uh, to have the effect that we want at the, at the system level. But how would you know what to do? Like, how do you know the patterning, the complexity required in a, in a planarian's head and then if you chop it off, how do you know how to regrow that head? Like, how did you find that map? Is there a map that, that comes out that you can, you can graphically display of what the yeah. state of all the channels look like? Yeah. So, so, so you, you know, uh, the way that you can imagine a few different ways of doing it. I mean, the first thing we did was to develop a way to see these electrical patterns, which is through voltage sensitive fluorescent dyes. And you can, the, how we started about 20 more or more years ago is to start correlating specific um, morphogenetic events with different bioelectrical patterns. So for example, you look at the early embryo and uh, you can see in, in the bioelectric uh, map, which you can see graphically and we've made movies of it. You can, you can take pictures or, or, or videos. Uh, you can see there, you know, for example, where the eye is going to come out, you can see there's a very particular bioelectrical pattern in the early face that uh, long before the genes come on that are going to pattern the face, the bioelectric map is already there telling you how many eyes you're supposed to have and where they're going to be and so on. You can kind of read it out. Now, some of these patterns are very complex and some of these are more simple. Obviously, we're starting with the simple ones, but it's sort of um, parallel to this work on neural decoding. People in neuroscience have this, have this idea that because mental states are, we think, a function of electrical activity in the brain, if we understood that relationship, why then you could uh, take a reading of the electrical states of the brain and deconvolve it with a bunch of uh, mathematical transformations and have some kind of output that was uh, revealed to you what the mental content of that mind was. Yeah, you could tell what the animal or, or the human patient was thinking about. So this is very similar. And part of this, starting to build up that dictionary, part of it is observing what are the bioelectrical um, uh, patterns that correspond to eyes and hearts and limbs and brains and, 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 and various things. And then the other important part is the functional experiment. So if I say, okay, I think it's this voltage gradient between here and here that's telling us how to make an eye. Well, let's test that. Let's reproduce that exact same gradient somewhere else. 
And if it makes an eye, great. And, and then we can start tweaking it to, make, to see, well, how far can I get away from this pattern before it's no longer an eye? And what is it at that point? And so now you can start to using these kind of um, very, very sort of uh, targeted uh, experiments. You can start to get a feel for what's actually encoded. Is it organ identity? Is it organ size? Is it cell type? And it's not cell type, but it's um, these, these anatomical features. And, and so it's basically by a continuous process of um, observation, computer modeling, and uh, functional experiments that you know we're honing in on on the bioelectric code. How how complicated is it? I mean, is it, it can't just be a simple gradient, right? Like how complicated is a a head shape versus a, a tail shape? Yeah. Um, so so I don't know the final answer to that question because we haven't cracked the code completely. So it may be that there are features of it that we simply um, are not aware of yet. But I can tell you that some things are rather simple and it's no accident that we know those because of course we figured out the simple ones first. I don't know what the upper limit of the complexity is. Uh, things like how many heads is a worm supposed to have is rather simple. You can read that out immediately from the bioelectric gradient. You can see it, um, the pattern is clear. What means one head and what means two head. Um, the electric face in the frog is also reasonably simple. You can see how many eyes, you can see where the mouth is, you can see where the edges of the brain are going to be, uh, pretty simple. Other things are very complex. So for example, the shape of the planarian head, we have not cracked that yet. We know, we know it's under bioelectric control, we can change it. So the size and shape of the head, we've not gotten to the point where if you tell me that you want a, uh, a head shape that's uh, you know a triangle with a, with a kind of question mark shape on top, we can't make that artificially. So so we haven't completely cracked it. Um, some of these things are quite complex. Others seem like uh, pretty simple. So have you figured out? You've all right. So you figured out how to reliably make a planaria head or a tail. Um, I think at one point in your work you talked about uh, different planaria have different shaped heads. You've been able to figure out how to make a, a planaria, I guess, sprout a, still a head, but it has a different shape. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, we've we've made it both in planaria and and in frog. We've made a variety. You know, we've made eyes out of gut tissue. We've made we've um, we should we should definitely talk about the brain uh, repair uh, project as far as the birth defect repair. But in planaria, that's right. You can you can make uh, fragments of planaria regrow heads that belong to different species. Again, without touching the DNA, what you can do is uh, you, can, you can make them grow a, a head that has a shape, a brain shape, and a distribution of stem cells that are appropriate to another species somewhere between 100 and 150 million year um, difference. And so and this is very important because it gets to, the, to this idea of morphospace, which is kind of the space of all possible shapes of a particular structure. People study that with you know, bird beaks and seashells and things like that. But there's this idea of amorphospace and there are attractors in this morphospace that uh, most embryos and regenerative systems are trying to land in their particular attractor, but they can be moved off of that if you, if you perturb the circuit that, um, that, that controls their position in that morphospace, they can land somewhere else and they can land, the cells are, are happy enough to build a, a wide variety of things if they're in a different, uh, region of that morphospace as far as the state of the electrochemical circuit. And at that point, they, they can land into, uh, into a region that, that normally is the default morphospace of a, of, a um, of a different species. And so, you know, this gets to the idea of, of birth defects and speciation. You know, one, one, 
uh, one species birth defect is a perfectly normal new morphology for a different species that might even be adapted. So there's, this, this is one way to sort of shift between, um, between anatomies. So for planaria, these cells seem to have, I don't know, do they seem to have a memory of forms that came long before the planaria? Is that what you're saying? Um, not quite. Well, so, so two. So, I would make two changes to that uh, statement. The first, I would say, is that it's not that the individual cells have those memories. I we don't have any evidence that individual cells have a memory like that. Although I'm not going to say it's impossible, but I don't think it's at the individual level, cell level. I think uh, the cellular collective has a, a wide choice of uh, memories that they could uh, that could be activated from this electrical circuit. So, think about. Um, Think as just an example, think about the electric circuit uh, representing a calculator. So that electrical circuit could be driven into a bunch of different states. It could display a one or a two or a three, or you know, there's all kinds of um, electrical outputs that that circuit is able to do based on two things, based on the laws of physics, which are driving it, and based on the laws of calculation and, and, and computation, which are really you know, um, describing at a, at, a, at a system level how the thing works and inputs from the environment. So depending on which buttons on the calculator you've pushed, that circuit is gonna get driven into various states. So planaria have the same thing. They have an electrochemical circuit that is capable of acquiring specific states that will then drive cells uh, to build um, different kinds of structures. And you can knock that circuit into one or the other of these states. And in fact, I'm sure there are lots that we haven't even found yet. Uh, by transient inputs, the way that you would with an electronic circuit that was programmable in that way. Yeah, but if uh, you said planaria sometimes undergo sexual reproduction, so if they do, they start out from one cell, right? That grows into Correct. a whole planaria. So, I mean, just like with us, you know, our zygote, I mean, it has the plans in it to grow a whole human, where a planaria has a plan to grow a whole planaria. So the memory, you know, it becomes distributed, I'm sure, and actionable or actuated, actuated by, uh, you know, this electrical patterning. But it does; it must start within one cell, and it must be present within every cell when it's in an undifferentiated state. I well, mean, um, yes and no. I mean, let's let's be precise uh, about what we're saying about the single cell egg. When you say there's a plan in there, I mean, the reality is there really isn't a plan in there. If you What's in there is, uh, is is the genome, but if you, of course, if you if you actually read the genome, there's absolutely nothing in there about anatomy. So when you read a genome, all you see is a protein uh, structure. You see you see um, a specification of the cellular level hardware that every cell gets to have, so the proteins. But there's actually nothing directly in there about what symmetry type this animal is going to have, if it's going to have eyes or how many eyes or what is it going to look like. I mean. Um, a lot of people, I think, don't realize that if if I if I take a genome and I try to look at it and say what this animal looks like, we have no idea how to do that. What, what you can you can cheat and sort of compare it to a different um, genome of an animal that you already know what it looks like, but but we don't have you, you can't uh, simply look at a genome and say what the shape is going to be because it's not directly in there. Now it's indirectly in there in the sense that if you leave it alone, let's say in the case of a frog egg it will reliably self-assemble the correct shape. But that is not to say that the correct shape is in some sense in there. I'm gonna give you a simple example. Um, have you ever seen that there's this thing called a Galton board, which is basically, it's, it's just a board with a bunch of pegs and the pegs are all uniformly distributed. 
you throw a bunch of marbles into the uh, into the top of this thing, and they all fall down. And no matter, and, and they all sort of randomly bounce around, and they hit the pegs, and eventually they come down. But no matter how many times you do it, they always land in a bell curve, in a perfect bell curve distribution with with kind of like this characteristic shape. And then you say, okay, where is the shape of this? This is a system that reliably assembles a particular um, geometry. Where is that bell curve shape stored in my device? And you can you can take that board apart till the cows come home. You're not going to find it because what it what you've got is a specification for a piece of hardware, and that hardware is such that it harnesses certain laws of physics and laws of computation to give you a reliable outcome. So the shape is not specifically in the cell in the sense that it's not written in the DNA. The shape is emergent from a really cool piece of hardware that takes advantage of laws of computation, laws of physics, in particular biochemistry, diffusion, and uh, biomechanics to give you a particular shape. And so what I would push is a view of the genome as specifying the hardware and the genome tells every cell what proteins it gets to have. So the genome is the hardware and the machine and, and the hardware has been shaped by evolution to have this incredibly cool property. The property is this, and it's by the way, the same property that all of our computers have. When you turn on the juice, it has certain default behaviors. So it takes advantage of the laws of physics and computation to do specific things pretty much correctly most of the time, you know, 99% of the time for most species, the embryo comes out correct. So, but, but what's cool is that the way the hardware works is the first thing it does is establishes a, uh, the, 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 the laws of physics operating through this machine establish a bioelectrical pattern memory of, of roughly what the shape is supposed to look like. And that's where it becomes reprogrammable. So you can leave it alone and let nature take its course and it'll do what it does. Or you can step in there and give it a very sort of precise um, targeted stimuli to change that software into a different mode. And then the cells are happy enough to build something completely different. And so that is what our, all of our examples are showing is that you don't have to rewire the machine. You don't have to um, modify the hardware because the hardware is, is really at a sophisticated level where it is um, reading these information structures and acting on them. You're much better off uh, re re editing those information structures and not trying to rewire the hardware. You know, think about regenerative medicine. We, this, 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 this issue of uh, can we, so, so, so the two kind of workhorses of modern molecular medicine are um, genomic editing and stem cell biology. So, okay. Let's say, uh, you know, 10 years from now, we've solved all the problems of genome editing so we can make clean changes to the genome. And we've solved all the problems of uh, stem cell biology. We can make any cell type out of a stem cell. Okay, so fine. So now somebody has lost their arm or they're about to have a craniofacial uh, defect or something like that. First of all, what piece of the DNA would you possibly change to fix that? We have no idea how to, how to figure how to how to answer that question. And uh, if you need to build an entire arm and you have a bunch of stem cells, how could you possibly arrange all of these stem cell derivatives in the correct three-dimensional structure to be a, a complex arm? You know, those two problems are going to be beyond us for a long time. We're not gonna see solutions to those problems in our lifetime. But so, so I think uh, trying to solve the problems of regenerative medicine by micromanagement at the hardware level is, is is incredibly difficult. Um, the complexity inverse problem is is a killer here. We're not going to solve it that way. But fortunately, we don't have to. 
The same reason we don't program in machine code nowadays, because we've understood that these devices have a really interesting sort of software that we can exploit. So when we make an eye out of gut cells in the temple, it's because we found an electrical trigger for a subroutine that builds eyes. We don't need to know how to make an entire eye or how to make a planarian head. What we need to know is that the cells are using a particular data structure, which is implemented in these bioelectrical circuits, to decide what they're going to build. And, and we need to figure out a way to simply swap out that data structure and let the cells do what they do best, which is build really complicated things by following the plan. And I think I think that's that's the roadmap to uh, achievable regenerative medicine in our lifetime. But how plastic are uh, planaria cells, for instance? Can they make you know head shapes that belong to other species of planaria beyond the one that you're working with? Like uh... exactly, yeah, exactly. So that's so that's what we've shown. We've shown that you can take a species of planaria and ask those cells to build a head, including brain and and, and everything else. Uh, that belongs to a species that's 100 to 150 million years different. That's crazy. I mean, what does that tell you, though, that uh, it's just an emergent biological property that, I mean, like, how far does this go, you think? How many different, how sophisticated of a shape or how alien of a shape could you make on a planaria where the planaria could still live in? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think what it tells us is exactly the story that I just laid out about the distinction between biological hardware and software. And as far as how far can you go, um, that, that, is, that is the question. It's not known. I think that the traditional view has been to talk about developmental constraints and, you know, these cells, can, you know, they're fish cells, so they only make a fish and things like this. I suspect that's uh, quite uh, mistaken. My conjecture, although I can't prove it yet, is that cells are in an important sense, universal constructors, meaning if you if you, we understood if we knew what we were doing and we could rewrite the plan properly, the cells would build basically anything that's compatible with the laws of physics, and that's 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 my conjecture. And uh, we've begun to so in the planaria case, we've made things out of planarian cells that don't look anything like planaria. We've you know planaria are flatworms; they're so they're they're almost two dimensional. They're very flat and thin. We've made structures that look like cylinders. We've made structures that look like. Uh, spiny hedgehogs. I mean, just things that are absolutely uh, far away from the default uh, anatomy of these worms. And um, I think more importantly, we've now started making synthetic living uh, machines. So, so synthetic bodies self-assembled from cells uh, that use totally wild type cells, so no genomic editing, but um, different environments and environmental stimulation to build new bodies that have uh, both, both anatomy and behavior that are completely different from um, what they were supposed to be. So we can take frog, this, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, we can take frog skin cells. This was uh, our, our, our latest paper in, uh, in PNAS. We can take frog uh, skin cells <clears throat> and, uh, and put them in an environment where they basically, we, we liberate them from the rest of the frog. They basically uh, kind of reboot their multicellularity. They get together and they build a thing called we that we call a xenobot, um, xeno for xenopus labus, the Latin name for the frog that we use, uh, and they make little little biobots that run around the dish and do specific things and have their own um, sort of uh, developmental trajectory and their own little life, and they look nothing like uh, embryos, the frog embryos or tadpoles. So I I believe the space of possible constructions out of cells is absolutely massive. The cells will build whatever if you can get the uh, the instructions right. But it remains to be tested, actually, what the real boundaries are. Yeah, so how do the planaria act differently if you make strange-shaped heads 
Um, yeah, good question. Uh, so one of the things we started to do, although we never finished this particular project, is we wanted to look at behavior. And so some of these, you know, the, these various planarias with the different head shapes, they have um, this kind of a pecking order hierarchy in terms of uh, who will uh, defeat whom in a, in a feeding assay. So if they're hungry, one type will eat the other type, and then the second type will dominate a third type, and so on. There's kind of like a ladder. So we wanted, we, we started some experiments to see if uh, planaria given the heads that look like other species also acquire their behavior and uh, their um, you know, sort of their place in this in this dominance hierarchy. Uh, I don't know the answer to the question. We, we weren't able to, to finish that work. Um, it needs to be, uh, we need to look at that again. Um, otherwise, they behave pretty normally. Uh, the planaria with two heads are really fun. Uh, we have lots of videos um, attached to our various papers about uh, looking at planaria with two heads. And you know, one of the interesting things is this question is, is do these two heads communicate with each other? Because even in a one-headed planaria, we were able to show that when you train them on specific uh, memories and then you amputate their heads, the tail piece sort of sits there and then it grows a new brain. And when it does, it imprints that information onto the new brain. So the memories persist as brain regeneration. And we weren't the ones to invent this. This was discovered in the 60s by this guy named McConnell. Uh, we, you know, there was some controversy around it, but we basically did it with a with an automated device that uh, that, that 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 proved it in an objective way that this was real. And and so uh, there's this there's this amazing uh, process by which information can be stored outside the brain and then imprinted on new uh, new uh, new brain. So passing information across tissue is a really important future um, aspect of understanding both behavior in these animals. But more broadly, you know, what is a memory really, and, and what does it mean to store a memory in living tissue and things like that? So, if you had like two-headed planaria, where you teach—I don't know if planaria can run mazes or do other stuff—but yeah. what if you teach one head one thing and you teach the other head something else? Yeah, yeah. And then you're confronted with something. What happens? Great question. We've been thinking about. Uh, we, we've wanted to do that experiment for the longest time. Uh, the trouble is, it's really hard to teach the heads independently. You know, when you're teaching the animal something, both heads are paying attention. So it's, it's really hard to um, uh, to actually do that. Yeah, I mean, not impossible. We've got some thoughts about it, but uh, there's lots of work to be done in this field. Huh. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, can we touch upon some of the other work you're doing? You said you have uh, ant colonies. Anything interesting there or, or like what, you know, is it the frogs that's holding the most uh, interesting work that you're doing? Like, you know, you pick um, out of your yeah, basket so of stuff. Yeah, so so there's a wide range of things. So so um, one one piece of the work is using frog embryos as a model of birth defects, and 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 asking how we can uh, use control of the bioelectric code to first of all repair birth defects. So we have this um, really uh, cool uh, example from 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 a year ago where we were able to uh, induce really um, uh, kind of profound birth defects of the of the brain and face by mutating some genes or exposing the embryos to uh, teratogens like alcohol and nicotine and things like that. And then we show that despite that, if you artificially impose the correct bioelectrical uh, brain uh, pre-pattern that tells the animal how and you know, what size the brain should be and where it should be and so on, uh, you can get quite normal animals. You can, you can rescue the effect of these uh, teratogens and mutations and so on and, and really repair. So, so I think that's pretty cool. And we've done the same thing with cancer. We've done the same thing with um, human genes injected into, into tadpoles. They normally make tumors. And we've shown that you can actually keep cells from defecting from the body plan if you electrically force them to 
remain connected to the rest of the body, even though uh, they're expressing this oncogene. So that's some of the frog stuff. We're also doing limb regeneration work where we're using these bioelectrical uh, states to trigger limb regeneration in adult animals. So we've done it in frog and we're um, now sort of uh, looking towards uh, uh, bi biomedically relevant uh, models so that we can hopefully be able to induce limb regeneration in humans at some point. It's, so all right, so two questions here. So are you experiencing with the frogs that part of cancer is also a divergence of the bio plan? It's not just other factors, genetics, et cetera? Yeah, so what happens is, uh, so, so, so one way to think about cancer is uh, uh, a reduction of the computational size of the individual. So, so individual cells are very competent and they handle their tiny little goals, you know, metabolic and whatever um, on the single cell level. But then during, uh, from, for, for during embryonic development, these cells cooperate and they, and they work together as a much larger sort of swarm intelligence that has this, this larger goal of making this body and so on. And that process, which is mediated by bioelectrics and biochemical gradients and biomechanical signals, that process can break down. And when it breaks down, when a cell loses uh, control connection, and in particular bioelectrical connection to its neighbors, that uh, the, the, the size of that agent now shrinks drastically from, from being part of the whole body to just being the size of a single cell. And when that happens, the, the boundary between self and outside is just the surface of that single cell. And now that cell is, is basically rolled back to a unicellular lifestyle of its ancestors. And, and then it treats the rest of the body as just external environment. So at that point, it goes where it wants and it, and it proliferates as much as it wants and it eats as much as it wants and it dumps waste into the environment. It, it, it basically acts like a unicellular amoeba in this, in this, in this environment, which used to be it used to be a part of, but now it, it thinks is, is, is external to itself. So, so these kind of defections from the body plan are exactly what happens during cancer and then metastasis. The first steps of transformation are an electrical state change that closes these gap junctions, these uh, electrical synapses to the neighbors and isolates the cell. We can, so the first thing we developed was a voltage dye signature. So you can see this happening. So it's like a non-invasive diagnostic modality. So you can, you can see these cells uh, disconnecting from their neighbors and, and acquiring this, this bizarre depolarized voltage. And then we developed some technology to um, artificially reconnect them electrically to their neighbors. And we show that when you do that, you drastically reduce their ability to form tumors, to metastasize, at least in the frog model, it works great. Uh, our next step is, is to uh, transition some of this to, uh, to mammals so that we can have a, uh, uh, you know, uh, hopefully make it make a dent on the cancer problem in biomedicine, but um, that's, that's how it works out in the frog. Huh. And how do you keep cells uh, part of the, uh, you know, part of the plan instead of, you know, going off on their own? Uh, there's a couple of ways to do it. Uh, you can directly target the gap junctions and force them to be open. Uh, you could uh, express new gap junctions. You could um, target the, uh, some of the ion channels to, or some of, let's say, potassium channels to open and hyperpolarize the cell, which helps the gap junctional connectivity. Uh, we've done it with light. We've done it with drugs. Uh, we've done it with channel misexpression, so RNA and encoding channels. Uh, there's a variety of uh, techniques. So if, if someone, I mean, in the future, if someone had uh, you know, liver cancer or liver tumor, and we knew the electrical plan, let's say, of the liver, we might be able to induce the liver and the cells in it, the tumors, to you know, to start following the plan and, and get rid of a cancer. You think that yes. would be possible? 
Yes, I think that would be possible. We're working on it. And in fact, working specifically on um, uh, software, uh, kind of an integrated software platform that would even help design drugs. So the idea is if you know what the correct pattern is and uh, you know what channels are expressed in the tissue, and we know this from profiling, you know, molecular profiling studies, then you computationally, you should be able to figure out what channels do you need to open and close in order to to shift from the from the disease state to the healthy state. So we're working on some software to um, help uh, help to design those kinds of therapies. Wow. And what about um, the frog leg? You, I believe you said that you're able to regrow frog legs when you uh, normally couldn't or they normally wouldn't. Correct. Yep. Yep. Uh, we, yeah, we, we had one paper on this uh, about a year and a half ago, and we have another one that's in the works now. Um, showing a really nice response in full adult uh, Xenopus labus, which normally doesn't. So what do you think is the mechanism by which you were able to encourage the frog to grow a new leg? Yeah, I think uh, what you have to do is uh, you have to um, use the cells to, to, to have the same electrical state that basically triggers leg formation during embryogenesis. So you have to tell the cells that, hey, build a leg here. And then you also have to convince them that the environment is appropriate so that, so that they don't shift the scarring. I think a lot of regeneration is blocked by cells uh, moving, going to scarring instead of regeneration because if the environment is hostile, if it's dry air and you know, it's uh, something like a leg of a mouse that is you know, stepping on it and, and kind of grinding it into the, into the uh, wood shavings, uh, the cells decide that um, it's, it's the scarring to seal off the, uh, the wound is a, better, uh, is a better strategy. Than, than trying to regenerate. So um, yeah, so so that's so that's what we do. We provide this is work we're doing with David Kaplan's group. They make the bioreactors. These are kind of wearable uh, sleeves that go onto an amputation injury, and they provide an environment. Uh, and we and we provide the the drug uh, blend that uh, tries to trigger the the correct bioelectric state. And and it's only a trigger. We don't try to micromanage it. So the intervention sits on the wound for 24 hours, and then you get 13 months of leg growth out of the frog. Wow. So uh, I don't know if you see this in planaria or if you could tell in general, what, what does the bioelectric state look like when it leads to scarring versus it leads to growing a new, you know, a new part that used to be there? Yeah, um, it's kind of hard to describe in words, but uh, we, have, uh, we have pictures of it and we're trying to quantitatively understand the signature of, uh, of, of regeneration. And, and uh, generally speaking, you're trying to induce the same bioelectric pattern that the embryo had when it was making the limb in the first place. But there's signals you're seeing for cells turning into free living, like you said, amoeba-like cells. There's a signal for sure for you know the certain morphologies, and then there's another signal for scarring. Um, I don't know that there's a signal for scarring. It may be that there's kind of a default path where if you don't know what to make, you just you just sort of seal it and, and, and that's it. Whereas uh, if you get specific developmental signals, then you try to implement that. With that, that the jury's the jury's still out on that one. Yeah, well, well, this is amazing, Mike. I, you know, unfortunately, we're at the end of time. There's a lot I could ask you, but what's the best way for people to find out more and see these images and these little movies and you know check out all your work? Where can they go? Yeah, um, we we have a very uh, up to date, uh, rich website that has all of this stuff on there, so you can you can get on. It's uh, www.drmichaelevin.org. So one word, drmichaelevin.org. Um, that's, that's our website. Um, you can also go to allencenter.tufts.edu. And uh, I'm on Twitter as uh, at Dr. Michael Levin. 
That's great. Michael, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, nice discussion. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.